Welcome to a podcast of AOC 2020 organized by Dr. Dev Pelajani, Dr. Satyavan Sharma, Dr. Ajit Desai and Dr. Akshay Mehta of the Academy of Cardiology Mumbai. This podcast is produced by the rightdoctors.com digital knowledge partners to the event. Coming up, a talk by Dr. Anuradha Lala on cardiopulmonary stress testing in women. Sharing with you over the next 20 to 25 minutes or so Uh, cardiopulmonary exercise stress testing in women are there any particular challenges i have no relevant disclosures before i start i think it's uh only um appropriate that i sort of acknowledge uh my journey here at least um my father is a cardiologist and i think it's it's particularly humbling for me to be in the city that he grew up in and he migrated across the world um to train for and then afford me the opportunities to train there as well and it's been through my connections with mentors uh, dear colleagues and friends that uh, they put me in touch with Dr. Sharma for this for this meeting and a dear uh, mentor and colleague and friend Dr. Judy Hockman had always talked about Dr. Wenger and how she was such a strong influence in her life and I always heard about her and I always dreamed of meeting with her let alone having dinner with her and then participating in the same conference with her so life is uh, full of surprises uh, surprises and serendipity and I'm so very humbled to be here so with that happy new year uh, congratulations to the academy of cardiology of mumbai for this 20th year in 2020 and for selecting such a relevant topic of women in heart disease so over the next several minutes i'd like to uh, share with you my organizational approach to heart failure i'm a heart failure cardiologist why cardiopulmonary exercise testing in particular in women i would argue is useful principles of cardiopulmonary exercise testing and then some important differences in women versus men and then i'll leave you hopefully with five take home points so i'm a simple simple person and i like to think about things in a simple way so my organizational approach to heart failure is as follows so i think about a patient typically these patients present with dyspnea as their primary concern or complaint as a patient with either heart failure with reduced ejection fraction or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and both of these obviously lead to chronic heart failure and interchangeably with an acute decompensated state now i should mention here this is how our american heart association and american college of cardiology define heart failure but there is this important category of the intermediate ejection fraction falling between 40 and 50% that obviously lead to chronic phases and acute phases as well when we think about the management of heart failure it's an, it's incredibly important for us to perform an ongoing evaluation of the stage of disease and that is because even though we've had a linear or stepwise fashion approach to how we manage it it's very important for us to survey where patients are at every step of the way because lifestyle modification just doesn't occur at the beginning it's an ongoing um conversation with our patients pharmacotherapy what is working for that patient what is not working for that patient device based therapies advanced therapies which include left ventricular assist devices and transplantation and of course palliation and addressing uh, addressing of symptoms and it's not just one stage this happens in a continuum again 
In order to apply these therapies appropriately, it's important for us to do this ongoing assessment. So I would urge all of us to continue to do so. So we, of course, have the stages of heart failure, A, B, C, and D. We also have the New York Heart Association classes of heart failure, which are more interchangeable or labile, where we move from uh, class one to two to three to four, and then perhaps after diuresis, when you present to the hospital with class four symptoms, back to a class one or two. And then the more advanced classes of heart failure are further classified into the intermax profiles of patients. But let's take a step back here. How did the stages of heart failure evolve? And it was really Dr. Weber and colleagues in the 1980s that put this nomenclature forward, and it was based on what I'm going to share with you today, cardiopulmonary exercise testing and oxygen consumption. And you can see here the progression is based on stage A folks having a peak oxygen consumption of over 20, then progressing to stage B, those patients who have oxygen consumption between 16 and 20, stage C, 10 to 15, and finally stage D, with a VO2 max of less than 10. When you look at these stages in further detail, you can see that, as one would expect, the resting cardiac index declines with progressive stages of heart failure. But what is incredibly important here, and I think particularly relevant to women, is the fact that there is an impaired cardiac reserve with exercise. So we can have resting cardiac indices that may be normal at rest, but with exercise, you can see how the compromise is more and more apparent as the stage of disease progresses. So you can see here, for example, stage B heart failure has a resting cardiac index of 2.2, but they are able to augment their cardiac index to more than threefold with exercise. Stage C, now you see a decrease in that increase. So at rest, you have an index of two liters per minute per meter squared, and then with exercise, that goes up to less than five. Now when you get to the, the, the most advanced stage, a resting cardiac index is compromised at rest, but you can see with exercise that they're really not able to augment nearly to the extent that the less severe stages were able to do so. And this, as you imagine, corresponds with their resting left ventricular end diastolic pressure, wedge pressure, or LA pressure that goes up considerably with exercise. So it's really this limit in cardiac reserve that I want to highlight here. And that's where the answer to this question comes apparent. Why is cardiopulmonary exercise testing useful, and why might it be particularly relevant in women? When we think about the heart failure disease course, it's a tricky one because it's one that is, is marked by overall decline, as you can see here, as we're familiar with in certain cancer states, for example. But it's also marked by peaks and troughs. So a patient feels lousy, is congested, needs to go to the hospital, is diuresed, and then comes back out. And they may feel much, much better than they were when they were decompensated. But you can see that even though they're better now, they're worse off than they were before that decompensation. And so this can make it particularly challenging to address when patients are on the decline because they feel better than they did uh, during their periods of decompensation. And it's really in this transition to the advanced heart failure state that cardiopulmonary exercise testing has been more popularized, but I would argue that it's useful throughout the disease course in management of heart failure. So what are the signs of advanced heart failure? 
So I'll go through this briefly. I think the audience is very familiar with this. If you're hospitalized or have to present urgently with heart failure more than twice in the preceding year, a progressive deterioration in renal function, weight loss that is unintentional, intolerance to guideline-directed medical therapy due to worsening renal function or hypotension, hypotension, as I mentioned, frequent systolic blood pressures less than 90, persistent dyspnea with doing the most basic of exercises, dressing or bathing. And these are some of the points that you can get at with a very careful interview. Inability to walk one block on level ground due to dyspnea or fatigue, recent need to escalate diuretics to maintain volume status, a progressive decline in sodium, and of course, frequent ICD shocks. But why is it then that if we have all these markers of what characterizes advanced heart failure, that it seems that we're not treating these patients, we're not addressing them? And part of the reason is because what I've mentioned on the preceding slide, we don't think of heart failure as having an overall decline in outlook. This is a slide here shown in uh, over 50,000 patients in Europe, particularly Scotland, in primary care clinics. And you see in men and women that heart failure really follows the trajectory of many cancers. And if I had to tell you, God forbid, that you or one of your family members had cancer versus heart failure, I'm sure many of you would choose the diagnosis of heart failure versus cancer, mainly because, as Dr. Wenger alluded to, we're not familiarized with how important uh, heart failure is, how prevalent it is, and the associated uh, prognosis with it. So this, you can see here, is showing prostate cancer for men, um, heart failure bears a worse prognosis than uh, prostate cancer, a similar prognosis to bladder cancer, and is a little bit better than colorectal cancer and lung cancer. For women, breast cancer is highly popularized, as Dr. Wenger alluded to previously. And in fact, heart failure diagnosis has a much, much worse prognosis than breast cancer does. And yet, because of a lack of awareness, uh, patients are not as familiar with this concept. So herein, again, lies the utility of cardiopulmonary exercise testing, which is really the ultimate prognostic tool. So one of my mentors and dear colleagues at Mount Sinai, Dr. Mancini, really did this landmark study in 1991, where she took several, uh, it was over 120 patients at the University of Pennsylvania, and she put them in three groups. Group one had a peak oxygen consumption less than 14, and they were considered transplant candidates. Group two had a peak oxygen consumption over 14, and they had transplant deferred. And group three, who had an oxygen consumption less than 14, but were not considered transplant candidates. And you can see their overall survival, particularly at one year and then followed thereafter, was entirely determined by this powerful prognostic indicator. This group two patients, who had a peak oxygen consumption over 14, had excellent one-year survival, versus that group that had a peak oxygen consumption less than 14 had a survival at one year of 70%. And then those patients who had an oxygen consumption less than 14 and were also not transplant candidates had a survival of less than 50%. And so it was this landmark study that identified a peak oxygen consumption of over 14 as identified in those for whom heart transplantation or advanced therapies nowadays can be deferred. So let's get into some of the principles of cardiopulmonary exercise testing and how it might be relevant to men versus women. 
This is a beautiful schematic um, from a state-of-the-art paper in Jack by Marco Guazzi that talks about, again, sort of how I played out the schema earlier on in the presentation. The signs and symptoms of heart failure are namely dyspnea and are relevant to heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and reduced ejection fraction. And these both lead to the uh, complaint oftentimes of exercise intolerance. But what's remarkable here is that we take so much for granted in doing the very least of activity. In just walking from here to the end of this uh, ballroom, for example, there are so many systems at play. There's the pulmonary system, of course, that is responsible for ventilation and gas exchange. The cardiac system is obvious here, stroke volume, heart rate, and oxygen delivery. But there's also the hematologic system that's involved, the hemoglobin concentration and mediators of oxygen release, the vascular system, what is going on with vasoregulation and the capillary network to allow for appropriate oxygen diffusion. And then finally, on the mitochondrial level, what is happening to enable sufficient ATP generation through the Krebs cycle and oxygen use or extraction. And I think it's so profound if we take all of this into consideration in, we, in our thinking of how we carry out daily exercise and activities of daily living, but how these systems can be compromised in heart failure. And cardiopulmonary exercise testing allows us to address exactly which of these systems is compromised. So there's a wealth of information that is obtained through these testing. We understand why patients stop exercising, what makes them stop. What, one thing we haven't talked about is the subjective experience of dyspnea. Patients, as a part of cardiopulmonary exercise testing, are reporting what their experience is, what their perception of shortness of breath is or leg fatigue by their visual analog scale or the Borg scale. There are a number of parameters that we obtain. The oxygen consumption is really only one of them, which is the most popularized, but we also obtain anaerobic threshold or the respiratory uh, equivalent ratio, which we'll talk about, minute ventilation. Um, of course, in addition to the rhythm, the heart rate, the blood pressure response, EKG changes, and the oxygen pulse, which is representative of stroke volume. Indications for CPET testing really revolve around the evaluation of exercise intolerance, like I've talked about. We specifically are able to get a determination of functional impairment that is quantifiable, as I've mentioned. It also helps us in understanding the contribution of cardiac and pulmonary etiology in coexisting disease, as I mentioned. We see when symptoms seem to be disproportionate to resting pulmonary and cardiac tests, again, getting back to really unmasking the lack of cardiac reserve that I mentioned earlier on, unexplained dyspnea when the initial stress test is non-diagnostic, a functional evaluation in patients with heart failure to allow for prognostic information, and certainly for those patients in whom cardiac transplantation or advanced therapies are being considered. And finally, for exercise prescription and monitoring response to exercise training for cardiac rehab. Oxygen delivery depends on how much cardiac output can increase. And maximal increase and maximal oxygen consumption de depend on the stroke volume and the heart rate, the presence of anemia, the oxygen saturation at rest, 
And then, of course, how much the muscles can actually extract oxygen. You can see here, this is the heart rate. Most patients stop exercise when their maximal heart rate has been achieved. And you can see the stroke volume increases to plateau. Cardiac output increases in direct proportion, really, to the heart rate after the stroke volume has been maximized. And then you can see that the oxygen extraction also plateaus. So let's look at some of the determinants of oxygen consumption. In a 25-year-old healthy person, for example, and we're not getting into sex differences yet, heart rate, stroke volume are presumed to be normal, oxygen extraction is presumed to be normal. But if we take a 70-year-old individual, they're going to have a reduced heart rate. And so their cardiac output by virtue of advanced age will be reduced. There is also reduced extraction in the periphery. In a trained athlete, on the other hand, stroke volume has been maximized, and so you see a slow increase in the heart rate because cardiac output is sufficient at earlier stages of the exercise, and there is maximal extraction on the periphery. In a patient with mitral stenosis, for example, they have tremendously reduced stroke volume, and so the, uh, the muscles have to maximally extract in order to keep up with the metabolic demands of the body. And then finally, someone who is hypoxic at baseline may have an increased baseline heart rate, and extraction may be limited. You can see here that heart rate and oxygen consumption have a direct relationship. The normal relationship is depicted here by this curve, but those patients with heart disease have a higher heart rate relationship to the oxygen consumption. So for a given oxygen consumption or cardiac output, the, the heart rate is higher. So this curve is shifted to the left. In an aerobically trained individual, on the other hand, you can see here that for a given heart rate, the oxygen consumption is greater. For a person with COPD or lung restrictions, they stop prematurely without coming to the predicted maximum heart rate. And that's a nice way of sort of mapping different patients out. And finally, before we get into the sex-based differences, the anaerobic threshold. With, we are aerobic mammals, and we depend on oxygen for the production of ATP. And so at a given point, the workload above which a given person exceeds their capability to work under aerobic mechanisms then they translate over into anaerobic metabolism and produce lactic acid. This provides a wealth of information as well. How often, how quickly does this occur? How early in the exercise pattern does this occur? And there can be a difference between men and women. So let's talk exactly about that. Physiologic differences in men and women are obvious. There is lower muscle mass in women, there's a lower hemoglobin, and there can be a lower stroke volume depending on the size of the individual. So why do these important differences matter? Well, they directly affect what we're assessing on cardiopulmonary exercise testing. And I spoke to you a little bit earlier about how powerfully prognostic this test is. And so if they allow for differences in some of the assessments, we have to keep that in mind in terms of what they're saying to us for prognosis. This is a study done in... Um, in Sweden of over 10,000 individuals using treadmill stress testing to provide norms for VO2. And you can see that for a given age, men have a much higher VO2 compared to their female counterparts. 
So this is just another way of showing this. This is done out of the Mayo Clinic based on exercise testing using a bicycle on the other hand. And so if you see, for example, my age range, an excellent uh, prognosis for me in a peak oxygen consumption would be over 45 milliliters per oxygen per minute squared. But a male counterpart in the same, in my same, same age group would have an excellent prognosis with 51 or higher. So what studies have been done to look at the relevance of these factors? So Samuel Maria in 2007 specifically tried to look at the effect of gender on peak oxygen consumption and the timing of cardiac transplantation to stem off of Dr. Mancini's paper where the VO2 of 14 was established at a cutoff. In that study, however, of 120 patients, only 19 were women. So this group looked at a, a large group of patients referred for cardiac transplantation at the University of Pennsylvania, over 500 patients. And you can see here that men had a higher peak VO2 as expected, 16.6 versus 14. Resting heart rate was slightly higher in women. Peak heart rate uh, also slightly higher in women. Resting blood pressure slightly lower in women as would be expected, as with the peak systolic blood pressure. But their anaerobic threshold, or their respiratory exchange ratio, was slightly different, but not terribly different. So it was lower in women, but again, over one. And the percent reaching the anaerobic threshold that we just spoke about was markedly different. In 79% of men, it was reached versus 66% of women. And this, importantly, their perceived sense of dyspnea or exercise intolerance was not different by the Borg scale. And what they went on to show was really that this VO2 cutoff was not as helpful in women as it was in men, but rather it was the stages of heart failure that seemed to be more helpful. In, and you can see in men versus women. So you can see this is based on the VO2 cutoffs, and this is a nice stratification of prognostic information. Whereas stages A, B, and C all overlapped with each other in terms of outlook. And it was really only until you got down to the, to the extreme stages of a VO2 less than 10 that prognosis uh, was affected in women. This is a nice study followed up by Dr. Mancini and colleagues where she showed that the heart failure survival score, which incorporates LVEF, mean arterial blood pressure, heart rate at rest, sodium, serum sodium, and also peak oxygen consumption, was much more helpful in women than it was in men. So she advocated, based on this study, to use a more all-encompassing risk stratification for women than for men. Now, can we speculate as to why these differences are uh, occur, and I think this is really fascinating and an area that's ripe for research that leaves more questions than it does answers. We've talked about muscle mass, but why does that translate into a difference? Could it be based on hormones? We know that estrogen can be responsible for skeletal muscle atrophy, vasoconstriction, and potentially fluid restriction fluid retention rather, androgens increase muscle hypertrophy and hemoglobin, and also smooth muscle hypertrophy and vasoconstriction. There's also a difference in vascular density of skeletal muscle, where it may be lower in women, which may lead to less oxygen extraction. And finally, as we've mentioned, there's a lower oxygen carrying capacity with a lower hemoglobin. 
This is a nice follow-up study in over 2,000 patients in the Cleveland Clinic that show, and these are all patients who are being evaluated for a heart transplant. And you can see, again, we'll talk more about risk factors tomorrow, but the incidence of hypertension was less in women. Um, but particularly, coronary artery disease was less common in women presenting for consideration of transplantation compared to men. What was interesting in this study, again, over 2,000 patients, was that there was no gender interaction for what VO2 showed in terms of predicting survival. However, what this study showed importantly was that women with coronary artery disease have a worse prognosis at any given oxygen consumption compared to women without coronary disease. So with that, I'll leave you with some take-home points. One, cardiopulmonary exercise testing can provide a wealth of information, particularly in women where symptoms may not be as overt or a little bit more challenging to understand. Peak oxygen consumption is the most helpful maximal predictor of outcome, but women have a lower peak oxygen consumption. Despite similar heart rates, uh, respiratory um, exchange ratios, and minute ventilation, potentially due to lower muscle mass and lower hemoglobin. There is no difference in women and men in terms of the predictive power, but the cutoff for peak oxygen consumption should be lower for women. And the heart failure survival score is likely a better all-encompassing tool that integrates oxygen consumption for prognostication in heart failure. You are listening to a podcast from AOC 2020, organized by Dr. Dave Pelajani, Dr. Satyavan Sharma, Dr. Ajit Desai, and Dr. Akshay Mehta of the Academy of Cardiology, Mumbai. This podcast was produced by therightdoctors.com, digital knowledge partner to the event. We bring insights from the world's best medical minds to audiences worldwide. The Right Doctors is a Google Launchpad digital health startup and is a knowledge partner of choice for medical conferences, CME, specialty journals, and scientific events from the field of medicine. If you like this podcast, share it with your friends and visit our website www.therightdoctors.com.